0: Well, this morning, is it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. As you can tell, I'm going to need help just to speak this morning. Um, so why don't we pray and ask for God's help um, as we open his word. Father, we know that you have, have spoken first and foremost in your son, Jesus, and I pray um, that he would speak and be alive and present among us this morning. And God, whatever we've brought in here this morning, our burdens, our joys, our frustrations, God, we lay them... Or we try to lay them at your feet. Um, God, that we could live our lives in light of, of you and your love for us. So may that be clear. Um, and God, use me to make Jesus loud and clear to us this morning. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, I love being right. And one of the only things I love more than being right is proving to other people that I'm right. That's why in high school, we had a a mock trial in our government class, and I quickly took on the job of being the defense attorney, because the the thought of going in, everyone thinking my defendant was guilty, and proving them all wrong, that he was innocent, just seemed like way too much fun to pass up. So I got the parts, I took the case files home, I studied them over, I found the weak link in the prosecution's uh, case, and it was this witness, this key witness that had inconsistent testimony. So, I was ready to lay into that witness as we came in the next day at church until I realized who the person was that was going to be playing that witness. And her name was Rebecca. And she was one of the sweetest, nicest, calmest dispositions you could ever imagine. She would never hurt a fly. She wouldn't lie. She wouldn't even play a witness who lied. But the time for cross examination came, and my questioning was relentless. I laid into her, and it was clear to everyone. Her testimony was inconsistent. What she said wasn't true. And even as I questioned her, she, she fumbled over her words. She was apologetic. She was nice and calm, even as I laid into her. And so the jury broke for debrief and to decide a verdict. And they took way too long. I mean, it was clear to everyone, the witness made no sense. She was incoherent. Her story didn't add up. And sure enough, the jury finally came back. They found the defendant not guilty. I won the case. I felt good for a moment until we started debriefing the case. The jury said they almost found the defendant guilty, even though they thought he wasn't. Because they really liked Rebecca. She was nice and calm, and they just believed her, even though what she was saying made no sense. Me, on the other hand, they did not like They thought I was too smug and confident, that I was too mean to this nice girl who just didn't didn't know what she was talking about. That moment taught me that, that life's often not about who's right. That life is often about far more than that. And so this morning as we open up this passage from 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, I wish I could say that was the last time I ever acted like that, but it's amazing how when we know something, when we have knowledge, it can so easily lead us to superiority, to pride, to self-satisfaction or arrogance. Maybe for you that's the reason why you're not a Christian or why you don't go to church. You've seen plenty of Christians treat others like I treated Rebecca, right? That we know the truth and it's clear that we don't need anyone else to say anything else to us. Or that maybe you're on the receiving end of someone in your life who always knows it all, and they have the gift of making you feel guilty because you don't live or act or do the way the th- or things you're supposed to, to do because you don't know what they know, and they're constantly pointing that out to you. <clears throat> or maybe you're the person like me who knows it all, and you need to repent. Now, wherever you're at this morning, this is not a unique reality. That people use knowledge to harm or to abuse or to make others feel terrible. And in the text we just heard Corey read, that was a problem in this city of Corinth, in this church in the city of Corinth. There was a group in this church who claimed to be in the know, to have special knowledge. Right? They they had read the latest study. They knew what God thought about just down to the particulars of a given issue... And they were demanding that others live the way they thought that they should live. And the result was they were doing great damage to those around them. Especially to newer Christians who were part of this church. And so Paul launches into this three chapter long discussion and response to this group of people who have said, we know the truth, we have knowledge, we know, and their knowledge was doing damage to others. Paul goes into three chapters to respond To these people. And this morning, we're going to look at the beginning and the conclusion of his argument in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. Paul begins his argument in 8, ends it in 10, and those two passages are deeply connected to one another. And above all, what Paul wants us to see is that your life ultimately is not about what you know, but how you love. It's not about what you know, but how you love. And I say that and I realize almost everyone in this room probably agrees with that on some level. It's not a very controversial statement. And yet, I would almost guarantee none of us are really living that out in our lives. It's why our politics often make us feel so superior to others. It's why you won't forgive that person. It's why our friends often look and think and act just like we look and think and act. It's why the first sign often of true and real deep disagreements in a relationship, whether it's a friendship, a marriage, a family member, why the first sign of deep disagreements leads to breakdown and abandonment in the relationship. It's because we think what we know matters first, and Paul's pushing us away from that to say, your life's not about what you know, but how you love. And in this passage through 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he unpacks why it's just not enough to be right. <clears throat> how you can know you're loving rightly. And finally, third, what you need to love rightly. So it's a big argument. It takes three chapters. We're going to kind of press in to the big themes of what Paul's saying. And first, he's saying to these Corinthians, it's not enough to be right. <clears throat> again, this is probably not a controversial statement, right? All of us would probably agree, yeah, it's not enough to be right. It matters how you live or how you act when you are, right? But again, none of us really truly live this out. The first thing that comes to mind is is politics, right? We don't just think that the opposing political party to us is wrong. They're evil, which is why in the upcoming election style, I'm going to have to listen to endless commercials about how we need to take our country back from those other people, right, that other party. And we do this with parenting, too, the mommy wars, how you discipline your kids, Public school, homeschool, private Christian school, private school. There's all kinds of ways you can know it all and make people feel bad about themselves here. But what is it that you know that often leads to division in your life? As a pastor, that's one of the things that breaks my heart most is often places where people are most knowledgeable or most gifted are the places of greatest disagreement and disunity in their life. And they know too much. They know, but it's not enough just to be right. And that's what's happening here in, in Corinth. That There's this debate going on in this church about what type of food was proper to eat. right? Which, of course, we can relate. We're still having that debate about what food's proper to eat today. And in that day, Paul begins by responding to this group of people by, by using one of their catchphrases. And again, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I hope you do this as we preach through this book, there's moments when, when quotation marks are used. And it's true in verse, eight in, chapter, or in verse 1 in chapter 8 here. Paul quotes something they're saying amongst themselves as a church. And in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this quotation, all of us possess knowledge, is something they were saying amongst themselves. And what that meant, all of us possess knowledge, is they're, they're saying we're in the know. We have special knowledge. We get this in ways other people don't. And in particular, what they're, they think they had knowledge about was this, this topic of food sacrifice to idols, which obviously doesn't relate to us as much. But in that day, most of the meat you would buy was sold in, in a meat market, and it had been sacrificed at a local temple to another god, to a false god. And Christians have always believed that you can only worship the one true God, which means you cannot be participants in religious services of other religions. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's a sin. We can't do that. And so there was this question in that day, okay, well, we can't go worship in that place, but what about the meat that was sacrificed to that idol? Is, is that off limits? Can we still eat that meat that's sold in the market? Or is that idolatry? Is that false worship? And so this group, they have knowledge and the knowledge they had was they were advocating to their whole church, you can eat that meat, it's not a sin, it's not wrong. And Paul says to them, you're right, you, you can eat that meat. This group that has knowledge, they are right. Paul's going to qualify the way that they're right, but he says they're right. And that comes out in verses 4 through 6 in chapter 8. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there's no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth... As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's some good theology right there. You should underline that verse six, because that's driving a lot of what Paul is saying here. There's one God, there's one Lord over everything, which is why Paul can say, that that worship that happens in that temple, it's not to a real God. So that meat that's sacrificed to that God, it's just meat. You can eat it. It's okay. There's no no God that infuses that meat. It's okay to eat. You can partake in that. And so Paul says, listen, those of you who have knowledge, you're right. You can eat the meat. It's it's not a sin. It's not wrong. But then Paul begins to press in and saying, you're right, but it's not enough to be right. And he points out two ways. Our, our knowledge, when we, co- we are convinced we're right about something, begins to lead us into sin and disunity, to do damage to others. You can be right, but that's not enough. And the first, the way Paul begins to press into this group is he says, listen, knowledge can so easily lead to pride. That's why he really starts in verse 2 by already beginning to nudge them a little bit. I love the way Paul talks. He says this, he says, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Although we all have met people, or maybe we are those people, who have known something, and that that knowledge actually reveals their ignorance. Right? You can have a lot of knowledge and not know anything. You can know, but not know as you ought to know. What does Paul mean by that, right? It's clearly a little bit of a jab here. And I think verse 3 is what what Paul's trying to drive. them. listen, you don't know as you ought to know. And how you ought to know is verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now for us Christians, all of our knowledge, everything we know, are defined by two things. We love God and we're known by God. And that should never lead any one of us to pride. That God knows everything about you. Inside and outs, the things you would not tell anyone else, the things that you do tell other people. He knows every piece about you, and he loves you anyway. And if that is not enough to drive you away from pride, the thought that you are laid bare before God who knows and sees all through whom you exist, if that doesn't lead you away from pride, nothing will And that's exactly what these Christians are doing. They think they have knowledge, they know God better than others, and somehow that makes them superior to others. And so knowledge doesn't just easily lead to pride. Knowledge also easily leads us to damage others, to harm others. That these in-the-know Christians, what they were doing was they were telling younger Christians, hey, listen, eating meat sacrificed to an idol, it's not a sin, which was true. And therefore, you need to eat this meat sacrificed to an idol. But these younger Christians, they weren't ready to accept that as truth yet. After all, they had spent their entire lives worshiping in these local temples, sacrificing this meat to idols, connecting it to worship of false gods into their past lives. Their imaginations and their conscience had been shaped by this worship over years and years and years. So when they sat down to eat that meat, they they thought that was a moment of worship to another god. They weren't, they did not, were not ready to live into this idea that this meat was just meat. And so these knowledgeable Christians just kept pushing and pushing. No, you, you have the freedom to do that. Do it anyway. You're wrong. And it was having a devastating effect on their lives. Some of them, from what Paul is saying, may have been, been abandoning the church and going back to false worship because these, these knowledgeable Christians were pushing them so hard. That's the point, I think, of, of verse 11. Paul's offering a warning Here he says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother, the sister for whom Christ died. Our knowledge should not damage others. And yet that's precisely what happens so much of the time. Now we've all seen it, right? Someone whose knowledge was right. And it led them just to run over anyone in in their path. That for you and I, we are sometimes most dangerous when we're right. Sometimes it's better to be wrong because you're not as dangerous to the people around you, right? That we know something about someone, or we know something about someone, and we discount them. We discredit them. We think less of them. We'll gossip. We'll look down on them. Even though we don't really know the whole story, we think we know the whole story. And so we justify that because we say we're right. Like these Corinthians that their theology was right, their knowledge was right, and they're destroying the people around them. The Paul reminds us, the Christian life can never look like that. Right? Because verse 11, your knowledge should not destroy others. Why? Because that is a brother, that is a sister for whom Christ died. That, that redefines everything you and I know. That you and I can never look down on anyone or never use our knowledge to, f- to see ourselves as superior to others for, for two reasons. That every other person I encounter is a person for whom Christ died. Right? That Christ's knowledge of me, of you, of us, did not lead him to, f- to feel superior or to look down on others, it led him to a cross. And if your knowledge doesn't lead you to to die for others, to serve others, to humble yourselves before others like Jesus did, then you don't yet know as you ought to know. Like these Corinthians. That our knowledge should always lead to self-sacrifice, to giving up our rights for the good of others. But it's not just that every person around me is a person for whom Christ has died. It's also I am a person for whom Christ has died. And when I take that in, like, really take that in. That Christ died for me. Should fill my heart with compassion and love and grace, grace and kindness towards others. And my knowledge doesn't put me over anyone. Because the first thing I know is I'm a sinner for whom Christ died. And that's a level playing field. It's not enough to be right. Your knowledge, your life, it's, it's not just about what you know. It's about how you love which, of course, raises a question, how do you know you're a person who loves rightly? Let's get practical. And that's where Paul goes, really, in chapter 10. That When he gets to the end of his argument in chapter 10, he quotes them again. A saying that was popular, a saying we, we quoted a few weeks back when we were in 1 Corinthians 6. A popular saying there was, was, all things are lawful. The Corinthians said that amongst themselves all the time. Which basically meant, as Christians, we have great freedom. As Christians, we're free to do so much. Which again is true in many ways. And yet Paul qualifies that statement in verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Did you catch that? At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul said... Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And here he returns to that language. He says, "Yeah, all things are lawful. That's great. You have freedom to do it, but not all things build up. Not everything is loving." And then he says, "So let let all of you let you seek the good of your neighbor, not your own good." And then Paul begins to lay into what that means for this church in their context in verses twenty-five through thirty, around this concept of of, of um, meat sacrificed to idols. He says, imagine a non-Christian invites you over to your house, and they feed you, right? They, they cook you a meal, they feed you. You can eat whatever you want there. It's don't ask questions. You don't have to ask them, where'd you get that meat from, right? Did, was it sacrificed to an idol? You don't have to ask those questions. Just eat and give glory and thanks to God. You're good. But that a non-Christian, not a Christian, invites you over, and they say to you, hey, this meat, it was sacrificed to idol. I just want you to know. Then Paul says, don't eat, because they're, probably weren't, they're, they're telling you that because they don't think you should eat that meat. They, they, don't, they, they think if you eat that meat, it's worshiping another god. So don't eat. All right, anybody confused? Eat, but don't eat. Paul's basic point is, is this. Your life, your freedom, your ethic is first to be lived out in love for others. It, it matters more what other people think about your faith than your freedom. Your freedom comes after others. That's Paul's point. As I read these verses, I think as, as we think about what it means to love rightly, Paul lays out a number of ways, but I just want to focus in, in on four pretty practical ways that you can know that you're loving rightly, some diagnostics. The first, you, you know you're, or you can know you're loving rightly if your freedom is being constrained. Let me ask, what, where is your freedom right now being constrained in order to better love someone else? That what have you given up so that someone around you can be better loved? As I've reflected on that question, I've reflected on it for four days now. It just made me feel terrible about myself, honestly. I don't, I don't live up to this text very well at all. Right? Because I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Right? My freedom's for me. It's for, for my rights, for me to do what I want. And Paul says, no, it's not. That's not what your freedom's for. In Christ. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And that matters more. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Right? That you know you're loving rightly if your freedom is constrained. And freedom's a beautiful thing, but it's even more beautiful when you give it up to serve and to love the people around you. And so I know this is something that, you know, pastors, when we tend to try and do application, we try and point out, hey, you're not doing this. You need to start doing this, right? We, we're just really good at that, and, you know, we need forgiveness for that. But, but I just want to point out, this is actually, most of you in this room are actually embodying this text so well right now, and I, I just feel like there's a moment to, there's a moment to call it out. Right? That's what you did in coming to this new place, starting a new church in Shawnee, right? You gave up what you loved, wherever you came from, whatever campus it was you came from, to come and start something new. And I hope it wasn't just to save a few minutes off your drive, right? I hope it was for love, to constrain your freedom, to give up what you know, what you love, so that others could have a space to come and meet and know Jesus and have a church they could call home, right? To give more of yourself, maybe doing things you would have never otherwise done, whether it's children's ministry, host teams, setting and tearing a church down every Sunday, whatever that is. Right, You have given up so much freedom in order to love and serve those around you. And so I feel like it's just a moment for me as, as a preacher to say, say thank you. That the many ways you've contributed to this place, it's, it's encouraged me and it's been a blessing to my own faith and strengthened my own faith. So it's easy to say, you're not doing this, you need to start. But I just want to say thank you for doing this. You are loving rightly because you've given up a lot to come and start and, and give to this space. So thank you. So that's one way you know you're loving rightly. You're all doing it, so let's move on. Um, point two, you're, you're, you know you're loving rightly if your conscience is shaped by Scripture. And what's interesting here is Paul's speaking subversively to the, the weak brother as well. <clears throat> right? He's gently saying, I know you think this is meat you can't eat. I know you think this is, is meat that's somehow connected to idol worship, but it's not. You can eat it. It's okay. The Bible tells you so. You're free. Right? He's gently subversively pointing that out. And this is important to point out because Paul is not speaking to Christians who want to add rules to the Bible and and make their preferences equal to God's will. Some Christians have used this text to say, hey, you can't do this, you can't drink that, you can't say that or watch that because it offends me. That's not what Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to weak brothers and sisters who if you do those things, they might abandon their faith. Not strong-willed Christians who demand you live out their preferences in your life. That our consciences should be shaped by Scripture, which means we should only draw hard lines where Scripture draws hard lines. But even those hard lines have some give to them if it means the destruction of a new Christian's faith. Right? So yes, you're free to eat idol or meat sacrifice to idol, but, but not if it's going to damage someone else's faith. True, genuine, all right, that there's freedom there. And so our consciences have to be shaped more and more by Scripture. Whether you're the weak brother who thinks something is sin that's not, or you're the strong-willed brother that, that demands everyone else live into your preferences. If it's a preference it's not in Scripture, then everyone doesn't have to live into it. That you know you're loving rightly if your conscience is being more and more shaped by Scripture. That's point two. Point three, then, what, another way to know you're loving rightly, and this is probably the most important Is that if you care not just what you say, but what others hear you say. That's really the the driving point of of 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, this entire argument. And verses 31 through 33 in chapter 10 should really be underlined, highlighted, whatever you do, whatever your thing is, in your Bible. These are are incredibly important verses to me. And Paul says this, and it's important to hear. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. That Paul doesn't just care about what he says, but what others hear him say. It's his point in verse thirty-two or verse thirty-three when he or thirty-two when he says, "Give no offense to Jews or Greeks, the Church of God." Right. Understand that what you do communicates something. To others, and what you communicate should only bring glory to God. But don't just care about what you say, care about what others hear you saying. And this is a pretty important application for us as a church. So let me explain kind of what I mean by this. There was in campus ministry at Indiana University, um, there was this evangelistic <coughs> event on campus. And IU is a very hostile place to the Christian faith. So even this evangelistic event um, was almost uh, boycotted, almost um, uh, uh, picketed just for doing that I mean it was it was crazy and so it was an intense event they used in the event a 30-foot cross that ended up for whatever reason 30 feet tall that ended up at our campus ministry and our campus ministry was an old fraternity house so right in the middle of fraternity row and we had nowhere to put this 30-foot cross so we put it on the back of our building and it was pointed directly at the front entrance of a sorority house So after a while, we decide, or some students of ours decided, you can't put the cross on the back of a building. So they stuck this 30-foot cross right in our front yard, leaned up against a tree in the middle of all of these fraternities at Indiana University. 30-foot tall cross. Unsurprisingly, we got some emails. The sorority sisters behind our house wondered if we pointed it at them to send them some kind of message. And so we as a campus ministry, we decided to to take that, the cross, down. Not because we're ashamed of the cross. We're Christians. But because that cross communicated something much different to the people around us than it did to us. And some people thought we caved, thought we were soft. But the reality was we knew as, as a leadership team, as a ministry, we're not just responsible for what we say, but what others think we're saying. That matters. That verse 33 is such an important verse to me that for much of my Christian life, I, I treated others like I treated Rebecca, right? I'm a Christian. I know I'm right. And if you think I'm wrong, that just shows how wrong you are, so I'm going to be even more right in front of you. And yet Paul says that's not how a Christian lives. Your life's not about you and you being right and you showing others your rights. Your life is about giving no offense to anyone but putting the focus on Jesus and his gospel. That's offensive enough. You don't need to help. So Paul says, give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, to anyone. That what should most concern me is is not just what I say, but what others hear me saying with my life. And if I'm the one bringing offense to the gospel, and it's not the gospel and Jesus that's bringing the offense, that's a serious sin. But Jesus himself can can carry his own day. And so you and I, we need to be and live in to what Paul's saying. And as a church, we're going to do that. That's why we're not going to, going to be hard lined or aggressive we don't need to do that we don't need to add offense to the gospel you and I are called to preach so that's one application but the other is that that means you and I as Christians we should be people who just say I'm sorry right we should never offer the lame apology I'm sorry if you think that I offended you right I'm sorry if you think that I did something that was wrong there no we can just say I'm sorry And if we did that in this place, like really, truly, we were a church that just said, hey, I'm sorry. We would be the most refreshing place in this world, or at least in our culture, in our society. Right? That we live in a world of misunderstanding. Across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, across gender lines, across any line. I mean, we make all kinds of lines. And everybody's always willing to say, well, I'm sorry you think that happened. But if we just said, I'm sorry, I care not just what I said, but what you heard me say. We would live into what Paul is saying here. A life that would give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, to the, those in the church of God. It would be a life that would only point to Jesus. Because if you're speaking and people are hearing something other than Jesus, you need to say something else. That's Paul's point. And it doesn't mean you'll never offend or or never have a hard thing to say, but it does mean we as a church and we as Christians should work incredibly hard to make sure what people hear us say with our words in life only point to the glory of God, to the gospel, to Jesus, and nothing else. Give no offense. That you're loving rightly when you care not just what you say, but what others hear you say. Lastly, and, and finally, the last way you can kind of know you're loving rightly is if diversity doesn't lead to disunity, that we live in an increasingly diverse world. And our demographic in Shawnee, KCK, Lenexa, it reflects that diversity. It reflects, it's reflected in the neighborhood I just moved into in Merriam, where one of my neighbors is in a motorcycle gang. The other neighbor is from South America. All kinds of opportunities for misunderstanding. And in most places in this world, diversity leads to misunderstanding and disunity. But that should never be the case in the church for us. Because we are a room full of people who are not seeking our own good, but the good of our neighbor. Right, verse 24, we're not seeking our own good, the good of our neighbor is what we seek. Right? That we measure our lives, not by what we know, but by how we love. And love, loving means giving up my rights to those around me. Giving up what I want to serve those around me. And the only way I'll ever do that, like truly do that, truly live a life that gives up my rights for those around me, is if I listen to those around me, to the different opinions, to people who see the world differently than me, that I can't just say, hey, we're different, but I can actually say, you know, I understand why you think the way you do, why you see the world the way that you do. The church should be a place of amazing listening. That if you're conservative politically, can you understand why there might be people who look at this world and say, you know, I think bigger government is a better answer to poverty and injustice and the world in which we live? That if you're a liberal politically, can you understand why there might be people who would say, no, that's a, government's a bigger problem. We need less government. That's the answer to this world. Because most people in our culture think if you're in either camp, you're evil or you're, you're stupid Rather than, actually, these are really thoughtful people that have come to thoughtful conclusions. And listen, I believe the church is is probably the last place where disagreement can still exist. Or if, if you think drinking alcohol is acceptable, can you imagine why there might be Christians who say, no, alcoholism's destroyed my family's life. I advocate for abstinence, for temperance. Can you understand why people might go there? Or if you're a Christian, can you understand why Some people don't see the beauty and glory of Jesus. That their life makes sense to them apart from Jesus. That you can understand they don't need Jesus to make an explanation of their life. And even though we as Christians will never give up Jesus and want to make him compelling and realistic to others, the reality is there are all kinds of people around us who look at our story and say, I don't get it. Can you understand why that's where they've landed in their life? That to love rightly means disagreement, diversity, never leads to disunity. Because not one of us in this room is seeking our own good. If you're in Christ, you're not seeking your own good anymore. You're seeking the good of your neighbor. But let's be honest. We all know that's the right thing to do. I mean, you can not, you can not even agree with anything Jesus said and say, yeah, of course we should seek our, our neighbor's good and not our own. And yet no one does it. No one does it. So how? How do we do it? What do you and I need to love Rightly. Right, because there's a reason there's so much demonization and disagreement and disunity in our culture. Right? Surely we all have come to this conclusion there needs to be something different about the way we interact and listen and hear one another. You know that maybe for you, that's why you've been so frustrated with the church. You see Christians contributing to the breakdown of the conversation in our culture, contributing to the disunion, the, dis, the disunity, the demonization, the disagreement in our world. And I agree, and that's not because. We're listening to what Christianity has to say. We're actually abandoning the one unique thing Christianity can say to this world that I confidently believe could end this culture where knowledge leads to disruption and to frustration and to damage to others. Christianity has a completely unique thing to say here. Right? That in one sense what we say is what everyone else says, right? Love others first. That's what matters. Love your neighbor as yourself. But everyone says that and no one does it. And there's a reason no one does it. That's why Paul ends where he ends in chapter 11, verse 1. Right? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And you have to understand, imitation doesn't mean a list of rules to follow. Here's the nine steps to imitating Christ. It's not a, a list of expectations you have to follow. No, imitation is to move in with someone. See how they do life, take up residence with them, see how they react, see how they live. And that's what we we as Christians do is we have taken up the life of Jesus. We have moved in with the life of Jesus and we follow after him. And it's that and that alone that can lead us to be people who are not defined by what we know, where our knowledge doesn't lead to damage to others, but actually makes us people of love, always putting others first. Because the life of Jesus we enter into, the life of Jesus led him to a cross. So one thing Christianity has that no one else has, that Jesus died for me and you. Jesus, the one who actually did know everything, who actually could have used his knowledge to thumb his nose at every one of us, who actually could have entered our world to lecture us, demonize us, point out all the many places we think ridiculous things, right, all the things we do to one another. He could have done all of that, and yet he didn't. He went to a cross instead. He died for me and he died for you. He didn't seek his own good. He sought yours. He sought mine. And it's only when you take in that life, only when you go after that life, you take in that love that you can truly love others. That the only way to seek your neighbor's good is because God's already sought yours. So you don't have to. Your good's already been met in Jesus in his cross. You do not have to seek your own good. It's already been found and lived out for you in Jesus. So you're freed up to go and seek the good of your neighbor. That your life really can be lived for others because that's how Jesus lived. And his life is the only thing you and I need to know. Let's pray. God, I say that and yet, there's so many ways my knowledge, what I know, what I think I'm right about, leads me to look down on others, leads me to damage them, leads me into pride and away from service and seeking the good of my neighbor. And so I pray you'd first forgive me the ways I've sinned against this text and your calling to me as a Christian. And God, I pray too for every person in this room that they would know they are a person loved by and given up, or that Christ has given up himself for them. That we could come and receive worship and communion as a gift out of your great love for us. So God, may we be a church who is defined by how we love, not what we know. And may the one thing we know in this place be Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I think... If there's any place that defines the fact that we're to be a place of love or a church of love is, is communion. Right? Where well, We're reminded that the life you and I all enter is the life of Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. And that's all made real and true through this meal of communion where we remind ourselves it was his body that was broken for us. It was his blood that was shed for us. And we come and we take that meal together as a family, different opinions, different disagreements, different ways of looking at the world. We all come in and we take this meal together because the one thing that holds us all together is someone else has sought our good. So we don't have to anymore. We can seek the good of our neighbor because our good has been sought in Jesus. <clears throat> so as you're ready, come. You can off, or tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice. Take the meal in, in groups of four to six at the direction of whoever is, is serving you, communion. Or if you prefer individually cut up pieces of bread or gluten free, we have that option um, available over here as well. And so as you're ready, we invite you to come receive this meal.